Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Palladium Podcast. My name is Ash Milton. Uh, I'm glad you guys can join us again today. I'm sitting down today with Jeremy Barme, uh, who's an Australian sinologist uh, and author. He has spent extensive time in China, in Japan, and in the US. Uh, and most recently, he's the editor of China Heritage and founder of the Wairarapa Academy for New Sinology. So we're going to be talking about some of his experiences and broader thoughts on the direction China's going, especially with regards to ideological turns in the Confucian and Maoist discourses and so on. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Ah, thank you so much. So Jeremy, in our, you know, the discussions we've had so far, one of the things we've talked about is uh, your your experience on the ground in China. And that began in the mid 70s when you decided uh, it was a good idea to attend Maoist universities kind of uh, at the tail end of the Cultural Revolution. So I guess my opening question is, what were you thinking? <laughs> well, I don't know if it was my idea to attend Maoist universities as much as um, pursue my studies. So um, in many ways, a typical product of the 60s, you know, anti-Vietnam War era, um, awareness of Aboriginal rights in Australia in the late 60s. Um, also much influenced by hippie friends, including my brother, the whole drug-taking culture of that era, liberation, mental and spiritual liberation, but also an engagement with things um, in what used to be in Australia called the Near North, what is then also called the Far East, and which we now call East Asia. Um, the Near North was just north of Australia. I, in high school, I did um, Indonesian and French and a bit of Latin, um, but also got interested very much in what was happening in the region. The Indonesian massacre, um, the mass murder uh, supported by the CIA and, and Australia had occurred in Indonesia in 64, 65. I was aware of that as a very young as a teenager. Um, and then as the Cultural Revolution in China broke out, 66, 67, a high school classmate of mine, Samson Voron, uh, who's a ham radio operator introduced me to the delights of Radio Peking, which was all this Maoist stuff about Red Guards, revolution, anti-establishment ideas, and so on and so forth. I was about 14 or 15 and was enamored at the same time as I was getting interested in Tibetan Buddhism and Taoism and um, Eastern philosophy. So from even my high school years, I was interested. In fact, many years later, um, when the end of the Cultural Revolution, I actually met one of the people who'd been broadcasting English language Chinese Maoist propaganda to a, the world, Sidney Rittenberg. He'd just been released from jail after many years as an American spy, but he'd been jailed for being um, a radical revolutionary in the Maoist Cultural Revolution. And um, so I heard him as a teenager. And when I met him, I said, I think I heard you when you were, before you were jailed. Anyway, went to university to study um, Indian history and philosophy to study Sanskrit, Tibetan, Prakrit, as well as classical and modern Chinese. And this was in Australia, correct? In Australia, in Canberra. I grew up in Sydney, but I um, went to university in Canberra to study Sanskrit, one of the only places you could study Sanskrit. Um, and I became more and more interested in both classical Chinese and literature and stuff like that, as well as the whole um, revolutionary experience of the Mao era. So those have been concerns and interests from, from my teen years, and they continue to this day. Anyway, I was lucky to get a scholarship. There was an exchange program begun in 1974, and I was among the, the second group of students who were 
given scholarships. And I went to China in October 74. And Mao was alive, if as I've said to you before, alive, but not necessarily kicking. And um, I ended up having three years in Maoist style universities um, in Peking, or as we call it then, Beijing, as one has to now call it, Shanghai and Shenyang, which is the, used to be called Mukden, which is the, um, the capital city of the Liaoning province in, outside the Great Wall in northeast China. So I get to China and I was very interested in what was going on, of course, contemporarily, but also interested in classical literature and also pursuing my interest in things to do with um, philosophy and also my interest in Tibet. So I go to school. I was 20 years old when I got to China um, and immediately began sort of familiarizing myself with that world. Our classmates were a select group of foreign students. We were first only in foreign classes. There are only a few Chinese classmates. Um, but later when I went to Shanghai and then in Shenyang, we had selected politically approved Chinese classmates. Now, these were all former Red Guards, the real thing, not these little pinkos or pseudo-Maoists you see today, but the real deal, people who'd grown up, they're all our age in their early to mid-20s, and they had grown up um, under the red flag, as it was called, and they had been part of the high school um, the orchestrated high school rebellion of 66, 67, 68. Most had been sent to the countryside to undergo labor reform after they were deemed to be no longer useful to the urban revolutionary aims of Chairman Mao and his colleagues. Um, and some of them had been selected for being politically reliable, progressive in the communist sense, and useful talents, renzai as they're called in Chinese, um, and given university positions so that they could study at university and carry out what were called militant activities by writing and studying and learning. I was in Chinese language departments that did classical Chinese, modern Chinese, revolutionary literature. And um, also we had to do lots of political classes as well. That was the main theme of everything at the time. And our fellow students, Chinese students, um, did all of those things. We also, when I was in Shanghai at Fudan University for nearly a year, um, one six-month period was devoted to the works of Lu Xun, the great 20th century writer. Um, another long period was devoted to the study of um, revolutionary peaking operas of Beijing Guoming Shendai Jingxi, which are overseen by Jiang Qing, part of the revolutionary culture that was behind the Cultural Revolution. Maybe just to give um, some some sense of the timeline here to listeners. So the, the kind of official timeline of the Cultural Revolution that's given is it starts around 1966, it ends around 1976, so about a 10-year period. Um, I'm sure on the ground uh, that looked a little bit different. But so you you're there around 1975. So this is the tail end, the the last couple of years of the Cultural Revolution. You know, as you're mentioning, a lot of the people coming out of the Red Guard environment at this point, you know, they've been through the ringer. I think you had mentioned before some had been sent and come back from the countryside. The people at this point had been through it, uh, so to speak. And 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 so just in terms of the years you're there, you're there from 1975 until when exactly? I'm there from 74, and um until the summer of 77, three years. And then I go and work in Hong Kong in a Chinese language magazine that's also aligned with the Communist Party. And I work there for three years while spending half, about half my time between Beijing and Hong Kong until 81. And thereafter, I spend you know, about a third of every year in China until quite recently. So 
Yeah, the Cultural Revolution, the Communist Party, after the death of Mao, the Communist Party declared the Cultural Revolution to be a 10-year period. They call it the 10-year Holocaust. Um, in fact, that's, of course, like nearly every aspect of official Chinese historiography in the People's Republic. That's a lie. It's untrue. The Cultural Revolution actually began in 1964 during a thing called the Socialist Education Campaign. Um, it failed. And it was an attempt to attack capitalist roaders and so on and so forth in the countryside. But that sort of petered out. And Mao and his frustration turned towards the educational area. And um, he found willing supporters among some of his relatives, his nephew in particular, and a few other people. And he decided to focus his attention and concerns for carrying out the Cultural Revolution on uh, high school kids. And I've met the, the, the original 12 Red Guards. I've met about three or four of them. The, the, the young guy who wrote the original proclamation of what would become the Red Guard movement, um, Luo Xiaohai, he was at uh, Tsinghua University Middle School, attached middle school. And he and 12 of his classmates are the ones who put together this um, proclamation, a manifesto called uh, Long Live the Spirit of Rebellion. Well, the spirit of rebellion is justified in three parts. Uh, he later ended up as being uh, in the tech world in America and made himself a nice amount of money, um, but also an extremely interesting guy. Like all of them, all 12 of them had extraordinary experiences. One of them became a sort of modern-day Islamic fundamentalist. He is a, from a, a Muslim background. He was the one who actually invented the term Red Guard. Um, uh, which is based on a, a Soviet a Soviet model, but um, yeah, they all had extraordinary histories, and I, I met some of them and dealt with some of them during the period when I was making a film with my colleagues in Boston about the Cultural Revolution, Morning Sun, which we made from 1999 to 2003, and we featured a number of Red Guards in that in that movie, um, and they were yeah, these are all part of the generation of people, some of whom some of whom sort of stayed true to the faith. Very, very few I've ever met stayed true to it because they realized how they'd been manipulated and used and then cast aside when the party no longer required them. As everybody, everybody engaged with the Chinese Communist Party or a Communist Party in the Soviet Union experiences similar. If your utilitarian value passes, you are cast aside. And often it is required for you to be not only cast aside, but also to be to be um, discarded and denounced, which has been an experience that nearly everybody I have met in China has um, had. So that's, that's part of my education. So, yeah, the, I went there at the time, the anti-Confucius, anti-Lin Biao campaign, which was um, which meant in real terms, because Mao was in favor of this, very much unlike um, the Xi Jinping era. Mao was in favor of during a political movement for all of the horrors, all of the complexities of the movements. And there was a movement in China, a political ructional movement involving denunciations, jailings, purges, and so on and so forth, every two years for the first 30 years of the People's Republic. So these are the constant political movements. And once one understands the rhythm of them, one gets an appreciation of how the, the communist version of history unfolds. Mao was in favor when something was being denounced. He was in favor of offering, if not the whole context of the denunciation, but at least material related to the thing being attacked. So, for example, during the anti-Confucian campaign of 1973 to 74 5, um, they reprinted a huge amount of, well, a relatively large amount of Confucius-related materials. 
Um, and so that's when I'd done a bit of my basic Mencius and Lunyu, the Analects at school in Australia, in my classical Chinese class. But we were then subjected to the whole thing, all of these major texts of both the uh, Confucian school and the anti-Confucian school, the legalist school of thinking, as well as the Taoists, were reproduced in copiously annotated editions because these were all used as the basis for our fellow classmates to write their military, what they call militant essays as part of their own um, education. They're like critical editions, basically. Exactly, all critical and all full of, of course, what was at the mo that moment, 74-5, the official line on Confucius, Mencius, and the rest of it. That line all changed radically, as it has today. It's completely different today. None of the Maoist era analysis or breakdown of Confucian history or thought um, pertained beyond the Cultural Revolution. It was all overturned. And under Xi Jinping, one of the, the boring things, the many boring aspects of the Xi Jinping era is that when they denounce something, they no longer provide the original material. So you don't you know, younger people, for example, I, I engage with younger students, Chinese and, and non-Chinese, and they no longer have ready access to the things being attacked by the government, which is a very unfortunate because in the past, people in every, in every political movement learnt as much about the opposition and the, the, the thing they were supposed to denounce as they did about the correct line. And that's why you ended up with lots of people with very sophisticated views of things because they'd read every side of the argument by default, by accident, really. And the, um, the communists did themselves no great favor by allowing people to have access to the things they wanted denounced or denigrated or thrown into the memory hole. But that was an aspect of our education. So I'd like to learn a little bit about the logic of that decision, because, you know, even obviously, even in the Western world today, we have these debates about um, censorship on online or on social media and things like this, or maybe what responsible journalists publish. What is the logic of like having your cadres engage that deeply with the opposition view? Well, it, it, indeed, it's part of, you know, I, I've been writing notes towards an essay on that, uh, China cancel culture in the 20th century. Talk about cancel culture. This is, it begins with the um, end of the, the last dynasty in 1912 and goes on to this day. Um, the reasoning at the time during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, it doesn't last much after that, was that these things that we're denouncing, for example, the, uh, an essay or a, a writer, we need to at least, the people who are denouncing such ideas or people need to at least have access to what the thing they're denouncing was. And so often they reprinted the relevant material. Not all of it. It was always edited down. It was always contextualized. But it was a reproduction of stuff because Mao himself repeatedly said that we need these materials to be negative teaching examples, i.e. we can learn from the things that we denounce by studying them, picking them apart, denouncing them. The People's Republic is founded on just such a moment. For example, in 1948, just as the communists occupy uh, Beiping, which later is renamed as Beijing, in 1948, the American State Department issues a white paper on China. Very famous document, very interesting document. Still incredibly interesting. It's available on my um, on my website, ChinaHeritage.net. If anyone wants to read it, there's a whole section called "Watching China, Watching," and it's in there. Um, Mao and his chief propagandist 
um, the Wang Hun, the man who is the model for Wang Huning and everybody like him, a guy called Hu Chaomu, very incredibly influential, brilliant man, evil, unbelievably evil bastard, but brilliant. Um, they got the American white paper in um, summary form. And it was translated in summary form by the KMT National uh, News Agency. And Mao and his um, colleague then wrote five denunciations of the white paper, quoting it and using it in their argument. Those five essays um, denouncing the American white paper of 1948 are still the basis of Chinese official America policy to this day. So anybody who's interested in the Sino-American Cold War today, um, if, they don't, if they don't know about those five essays, they should go and read them because they are still crucial and they're used um, to frame the economic clash with America in the People's Daily and the mainstream press today. But Ma believed that at least you had to have some of this material available. And that's, this is how, as a student, um, our university produced its own textbooks. There were no national textbooks because they'd all been pulped and denounced and all been cancelled. So some universities, like my university in Shenyang in Northeast China, they produced an internal textbook on the major political line struggles in the, on the arts and literary front from the 1930s through to the 1970s. And those textbooks in two volumes, which I still have, um, I got an extra set because um, my original set had to be hand pulped um, in 1977. But um, they, those texts had at the end of each um, chapter, they had a small selection of some of the stuff that you were supposed to despise and denounce. And that was my first guide to, oh, these are all the things that I should, as soon as there's some opportunity and I live overseas again, these are all the things I should go and read, which I did. And this is how I got a, an education, first from the Maoist perspective and then from the anti-Maoist perspective of what were the, you know, the texts up for discussion and debate. And all of us students and colleagues all did this type of stuff. I was also very lucky among the Chinese um, fellow classmates who were all, as I said, politically reliable, hand-picked, very careful with us, very nice to us, even though we were designated as foreign spies and agents of influence. I had one particular classmate in 1976 who I got on with very well. And he one day, right after this Tiananmen incident of, um, of April the 5th, 1976, when um, Deng Xiaoping was you know, thrown from power and so on and so forth, this big protest against Mao in Beijing, um, my classmate took me aside and said, I think I should teach you how to read the newspaper properly. And he spent the next few months every night sitting with me, going through the key People's Daily editorials, the main photographs on the front page, and then the paper as a whole, teaching me, this is we who are in part of the propaganda world in China. We have been trained to write this stuff and do this stuff. This is how we read the paper, even though we never tell anybody that this is what we're doing. Most well-educated, no, most normal people in China have learned, whether they're farmers or whether they're workers or students, not, not, not intellectuals. This guy himself wasn't from an intellectual background. He said, you just learn. You learn because your fate, your future, and your family depend on you understanding what the hell's going on. And he educated me. It was fantastic. I had an incredibly detailed education in Maoist rhetoric. And so what, um, you know, maybe give us a taste of that. Like, what, what did it look like to sit there and read a newspaper in, in 1976 uh, in, in Beijing or in Shanghai? What did you look for or what was not there? 
So while this event, this major event, it was a, a popular protest. 76 starts out January 76, the uh, premier of China, the guy who runs the state council, the so-called government arm of the government of, um, of the People's Republic, a guy called Zhou Enlai, he dies after a long battle with cancer. Now, Zhou Enlai is no saint. This is an incredibly, he starts out as a as a Secret Service agent and, a, and as an assassin in the 1920s, and never gets any better. He, my, my teacher, a very famous China scholar, said famously, Zhou Enlai is the man who can lie with the suavity of an angel. Anyway, he dies in January 76, um, and many the, the mass sent, there's a mass sentiment that one learns of, I had no idea, one just knew who he was and had a basic education. I was 22, you know, as well-read as I could be at that stage, but, you know, not particularly insightful. He was seen by many people as being, in the 70s in particular, a moderating influence on the excesses of the era, a man who wanted the economy to work, who wanted to make sure, wanted to make sure people were fed. We're talking about China at the time as being incredibly impoverished. I mean, really poor, bad food, lousy clothing, rationing of everything. Lots of people had died from starvation and of the massive murder campaigns and stuff. So it was a really benighted environment. But extraordinary if you're interested in literature and culture and stuff, because all of that stuff was sort of vaguely available. He died, and there was this looming sense that, oh, my God, we're heading towards a national crisis because there's nobody in a, a position of power and authority who can at least maintain the basic livelihood of this nation. And in April, April the 5th every year, and they, they fixed this day, on, despite the lunar calendar, it used to be different traditionally, they fixed this day as being the day to commemorate dead ancestors or loved ones. It's called Qingmingjie, the day of purification and remembrance. And on April the 5th, 1976, large crowds gathered in Tiananmen Square in Beijing with huge floral wreaths, mostly made out of paper, and slogans and so forth. And they put these wreaths in the center of the square at this monument called the Monument to the People's Heroes, which was built in the 1950s to commemorate the martyrs of the revolution. And they put, they built, literally built a pyramid out of these floral tributes to Zhou Enlai, his memory and um, out of sort of commemoration of him. Many young people there, and we're talking about tens of thousands of people to power, not just a couple, like tens of thousands of people visited over a number of days. And many people took, had written poems in classical Chinese, which was a great way to learn class, better classical Chinese is to learn those poems, um, classical Chinese essays, and so on and so forth. And people gave speeches, read out commemorations. It was the first mass public demonstration seen in the People's Republic, really independent since 1949. It sent a wave of shock through the government because many of the poems were obviously anti the Maoist, the hardline, you know, what they call extreme leftist faction. I mean, I, they're all debatable terms. Um, and were very pro Zhou Enlai and pro the deputy premier, a guy called Deng Xiaoping, who'd only recently returned to power. Uh, amusingly, he got back into power in 1972, 73, against Zhou Enlai's objections. Mao wanted him back in power because he needed somebody younger, who could actually run the government, who could actually keep the, the thing ticking over, because the place was facing fiscal collapse. Um, anyway, Deng Xiaoping was blamed for having organized, orchestrated this rebellion. He was thrown from power the next day and denounced as being a capitalist roader and turning China into a capitalist nation and so on and so forth. Um, and the newspapers reflected this. So the newspapers that night 
um, they first broadcast their editorial of the next day on the, the 6th. Um, and um, my classmate said, well, you know, this is what the editorial is saying. Let me sit with you and read it. And we read, I read it as being not exactly the opposite, but when they use this term, to my mind, it actually means this. He was doing, he was reading against the grain. He said, we all have learned how to read between the lines and against the grain. Not everything isn't just the opposite of what it appears to be. It's graded and gra there's a, gra a gradient. It's gray when you have to decide on which point of the gray scale. This, this red language, this extremist propaganda is actually functioning because between the lines, you can work out exactly what type of power struggle is going on at the moment. And if you look at the pictures in the newspaper, you show me a picture and said, this is how the picture looks. Notice that they've used this type of font in the, um, in the caption of the picture. They use that font when they want to do this, that or the other. The picture is arranged, see how they're lined, people are lined up in the picture and see where the shading is. That is done because so-and-so is now out of favor and so-and-so is in favor. So this is classic criminology type stuff. Right, there's a bit of like soothsaying that goes on in this sort of thing, isn't there? You read the signs and you hope that on balance, uh, you're basically correct. Well, indeed, and it's not just a game because for people then, after all, this is in completely closed media environment. There's no social media. There are no little, you know, newspapers or independent comments. None of that. This is all there is. There is official media and official news. And therefore, if you want to understand what's going on, and also if you're up for a job in the future, if you're trying to work out if you can apply for perhaps a move of your apartment or not, or if you're able to find time to go and see your family members, all of these things depend on the political app atmosphere and what's called the latest developments in the class struggle. It's called. So these things are, it's a matter of people's not only mental well-being, but actual physical welfare to be able to understand, to work out what the hell is going on. doesn't mean everybody was interested or everybody did this, but you'd be surprised at the huge numbers of people you'd come across who are fluent in this way of interpreting things. This is one of the reasons why today you speak of, we speak of these sort of wolf warrior type characters, why there are so many millions of people in China who are engaged with this sort of vitriolic behavior and constantly obsessed with politics and America and global affairs and so forth. They are, they are the inheritors of a long tradition now, in particular since the Maoist years, since the 1940s, actually goes back much earlier, but they're inheritors of a very long tradition of engaging with understanding the world from a political perspective, even if, and this is incredibly important, in particular something that I think friends in America can now appreciate because of the Trump era, even if most of the stuff you come up with is conspiracy theory based. So China has had Basically, in my era in particular, but even now, China has only ever had really Fox News. That's all it's really had, a version of Fox News. It's only had a popular approach to politics and life that is really a form of conspiratorialism. In China, that's been the basic element of political discourse and behavior for 70 years. So America's... Um, conundrums today help one understand very well what's been going on in China because America is now in a position to appreciate the actual, uh, the texture of Chinese reality in a way that wasn't possible in 10 to 15 years ago. Something I've heard before from, you know, often from people who come out of like the former Soviet sphere is it's a sentiment that goes something like this, you know, if you have a media landscape where things are incredibly biased, where people are journalists or basically just political actors, 
and where there are all these ideological agendas at play, it is better to at least have a population that knows that the, that is the role of the media rather than one that believes that there is a kind of honesty there that doesn't actually exist. And, you know, and, and I guess the sense as well, at least you know you're being given party line and you can kind of have come in with the mindset of drawing your own conclusions. I'd like to hear what you think about that. And like, you know, it sounds like to a degree that was in fact the mindset that the the Chinese people you're interacting with at the time had. But, you know, what what was the actual experience of that? You know, I could also see there being actually just this kind of psychological unraveling if you feel that you are constantly being swamped in illusions, basically. Well, indeed, I know very, very well this the Soviet argument. You know, when every, if everything is untrue, you work out what is a truth for yourself, and you become an independent actor. If you have the wherewithal, as an individual, whether no matter what background you're from, class or, or, or social strata, it's okay if you have that type of noose, that mentality. But for many people, it's just beyond their their capabilities. I must say that um, though coming from the periphery of your great. American Imperium, um, growing up in Australia and spending much of my life there and now living in New Zealand, those I know here have a far have always had a far more um, cynical view of the media in the in the so-called West, in the international environment than perhaps our American cousins have had. So the Soviet type of approach is one one finds always very familiar and comfortable. In the Chinese context at the time, because I worked, so I was a student for those years, three, four years, most of my classmates, Chinese classmates, were themselves propagandists. They'd been selected to go to university to better improve their Chinese language skills, their reading abilities, and to go out and work as editors, writers, journalists, and propagandists. So I was involved in that sort of world of meaning making from the very my first days in China. And then I went to work in a Chinese language news um, publication in Hong Kong, a magazine called the Seventies Monthly, under one of the great um, editors and writers who's still around, who's just moved to Taiwan because of the oppression there. And then I worked in that magazine. Then I became a Chinese writer using writing in Chinese for 15 years as a writer. I've had an, a long-term engagement with media issues and involved an involvement with Chinese media figures and journalists for my whole life, adult life. Um, what it meant in re- real terms for people I knew was, so I was there as the crumbling began. So I get into China in 74 when the Confucius campaign is going on and it takes a while to realize that you know, there's absolutely no enthusiasm whatsoever for any of this stuff among our classmates or in the society. Generally, it's a very, there's no, you know, there's lots of performative enthusiasm. It's completely hollow and obviously phony. Um, 76, this major moment in April 76 when the Zhou Enlai commemoration occurs and then it's crushed. And then this few months of despair, wide-filled despair among our fellow classmates and others who are very careful never to give away too much because it's, it's, they could suffer badly for it. But the sense of impending crisis. Mao then dies in September. And once he dies in 76, everything, literally just after he dies, it all begins to unravel. And it unravels in real terms for my life. And so when it happens, Mao dies in September the 9th. Uh, 1976, we're in, in, in Shenyang, and there's all these obsequies and all this sort of official mourning and all that. And then it's because we have at that time, as students, we're all sent off to the countryside or into factories to work for a month or two each semester. 
So our semester in the countryside comes up and our class is sent off to the outside Dalian, the Liaodong Peninsula, to go and pick apples in a commune for a month. And so we go off to do that, there's 10, 15 of us, to work with Chinese farmers, peasants in a commune picking apples. The apples are being picked for sale to the Soviet Union, which is called in Chinese the Soviet Revisionists, for because China needs more foreign exchange. So we're picking apples that nobody there is allowed to eat and being sent off to the Soviet Union. It's self-education. While we're there, the coup begins. The anti the anti-circle gang of four coup starts. It starts because the newspapers on about the 5th or 6th of October start printing these extraordinary gnomic sayings and comments about unity and you know, plotting and so on and so forth. And every day we're in the Arden Peninsula, which is the basis for the Xinjiang military region, which is where they have huge air, an air force. Um, we have airplanes flying overhead every day, all day. No one has any idea what the hell, something is going on. Then on the 6th and 7th, it becomes evident something major has happened in Beijing because the editorials start indicating there's been, they indicate by talking about the need for unity that there's been a huge break. Right. This is the opposite reading, right? Exact opposite reading. One of my classmates has um, a shortwave radio. We listen to Radio Australia, which is one of the first radio program or operations in the world to report that the four closest allies of Mao Zedong have been detained in Beijing and they will be eventually charged. Now we tell our teachers that, our teachers lock us up in our dormitory, our peasant dormitory, and they, we have to go and find out. And they send a delegation up to Shenyang to work out what the hell has happened. And they don't, they say, you mustn't speak to, they tell us, don't speak to any Chinese person whatsoever, what you've heard on your radio. So we can't because we're locked up. Our teachers come back. And by this stage, it's become well known through the grapevine that this key group of people have been overthrown in a coup. It's a military coup carried out in Beijing. It's known as the, as the Huairintang coup in Chinese. Um, and our teachers, the key teachers, some of them nicer than others, other the party secretary and stuff are, are thugs, um, as they always are. Um, but some of the teachers start gradually when we're going off into the fields to go to the apple trees to pick apples or on our way back in the evening or whatever, they'll take one or two of us aside and say, well, you know, I've always hated Jiang Qing. She was such a monster. And Jiang Qingqiao, that so-called Firitation thug. So they immediately, the, everything we'd been taught and we'd come to get used to begins to unravel, just even in these private conversations. Then over the next few months, um, I mentioned the textbooks we'd had. We, we were ordered to um, go, go to class, take out our textbooks. And in the first month or two, we were instructed to go to page so-and-so and put a black line through the following sentences. So cut out these sentences. They are no longer politically acceptable. I guess it's uh, harder than, uh, it's more obvious than editing Wikipedia articles. Much so. harder than doing editing online today. Then take out the following passages and cut them out. And then a few weeks later, rip out the following pages and hand them in. And then in January, February, 77, hand in the books, they're all being pulped. <laughs> everything, everything, literally the world that um, we had all got used to, the propaganda lines, the slogans, all the stuff in the newspapers and magazines, by the end of October, November, December, 1976, it was all wrong. But nobody knew what was right. And so it was an extraordinary, it was a world, for me, a world-changing, worldview-changing experience to see it all, to learn it all as canonical Maoist stuff, 
see it begin to unravel, then watch it collapse over the next few years. And because I lived in Hong Kong and Beijing and I was involved with the publishing industry, I tracked exactly what happened over the next 10 years. I eventually did a book on the, the death of the Mao cult and the revival of Maoism. Uh, it came out in the mid-90s, but the book began with um, a forensic study of documents that a friend leaked to me in the late 1980s. And they were the documents issued by the main publishing um, group called the Xinhua New China Publishing uh, Bureau in Beijing concerning, and we're talking about hundreds of documents. I read, read through them all. And they're concerning how do we pulp the works of Mao? How do we get rid of the 1.3 billion posters we have of the chairman? How do we get rid of all those posters of Zhou Enlai and so on and so forth? So the, they're not only the instructions of to every local province and township how to get rid of this stuff, but who's going to pay for it? What will we do with the pulp that we create from it? Will we print new textbooks and so forth? And how do we enforce these rules and regulations yet maintain enough Maoist stuff so it looks like we're still paying obeisance and being and being loyal to him and his memory because we're not getting rid of Mao. It's being modulated and changed. So I've spent a lot of time studying exactly how it happened. And then by the early 1990s, um, I was among the first people that said, he's going to come back. He's coming back. He's going to be formally part of popular culture. He will eventually be completely at the center of official culture again. And I remember giving a lecture at Harvard in 1993 and all the learned boffins there, well, not all, a couple of the great ones said, I think you're right too, but the famous people, Roderick McFarquhar and others all said, oh, you have no idea, completely very cute, you know, word from the Chinese street, but this is absolutely ridiculous. And I said, well, let's see. Sadly, Rod's now dead and I can't say, well, I told you so. I, I got to ask, though, you know, you're, you you mentioned um, about the these these Red Guard or, you know, these fellow Chinese students you had who didn't pick for their political reliability. As things are falling apart, what is their psychology? Like, what are they saying and doing? Or they've, have they just disappeared at this point? No, they haven't. These are kids, well, a bit older than me, so mid-20s. I was, by this stage, I'm 22. They're all 24, 5, 6, some of them 20, in late 20s. They have seen... They've all grown up in the um, in the late fifties. They have seen and they know about the mass starvation. They didn't nobody talk about it until the nineteen eighties, but they'd seen all of that. They'd seen all the political movements. They'd gone to school um, just as the Cultural Revolution broke out. They were involved with penalizing and attacking their teachers, their principals, the local municipal authorities. They themselves had been, some of them had been involved in, in live warfare with real guns and stuff that, that all that broke out in 68, 8, 69. Um, you know, because Chen Mao, you know, part of the many things he wanted to do was he, part of the aim of the Cultural Revolution was to create a battle-hardened group of successors who would literally go to war. And he celebrated in 1967, I think it was, on his birthday, 26th of December, 1967, he held a banquet in in Beijing. And he said to his colleagues who were gathered there, let's celebrate the success of the civil war. He created the civil war. So my classmates had all been through the war. They'd all been then purged and sent off to factories or the countryside in silence. We talk about millions of young people. All the young people in all the urban centers from the ages of like 14 to 23 or 4 were all um, rusticated, sent off to the countryside. And many of them didn't get back 
to the cities until the late 70s or early 80s. The ones in my class had been given special permission to go to university. So they'd been, they'd seen, then they'd seen in 1971, the so-called attempted coup by Chairman Mao's hand-picked successor and close comrade in arms, Lin Biao, the man who'd come to power during the Great Leap Forward and was the man who created the Little Red Book and who was a slavish follower of Mao's. I mean, the coup is a complete you know, fantasy. It was made up just to get rid of Lin Biao because Mao was dissatisfied with him. Mao's dissatisfied with all of his successors, and that has always been the problem of the Communist Party's succession crises. Anyway, so these young people had all, like my classmates, had all seen all of this. They'd all been, the, the Lin Biao death in September 71, 50 years ago this year, had been the great turning point. I later learned for nearly everybody. They all, they all realized nothing we've done or supported or believed in means anything. It's all crap. So you, they all end up, all the people I knew end up being incredibly cynical about politics. So by the end of 76, and you're still talking about my classmates, to them, so Dung was purged. We'd opposed Dung. We overthrew him. He'd been caught back in 73, 74. They'd been thrown out again in 76. And they all said, he'll be back. All that stuff that we, we thought would, had gone in our so-called cultural revolution, attack on bourgeois, this, that, and the other, that'll all be overturned. So that was their reaction. It'll all, it'll all collapse. Everything that you've, Jeremy, everything you've learned, everything you've read, it will all prove to be, you know, interesting experience but an absolute lie. It's, it's a certain interesting kind of, um, you know, maybe toxic, but still there's psychological resilience, I guess, that one develops. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I think about when, when you see, you know, how many of the leaders in, in Deng's generation, for example, did, as you say, went to the countryside or were purged and then came back. And, you know, you, you kind of imagine the, the, the psychological state you had to have under that process and um, it's, I mean, it's intense, you know, I, th I think most people, if you haven't been primed for this for a number of years by the, the stuff going on around you, I'm sure most people can't really get through it the way some of these guys could. I mean, I, I'd kind of like to, to get your thoughts on that, honestly. This, you mentioned in one of our discussions, you know, this, this um, a certain type of personality who kind of learned to uh, run the political track, so to speak, uh, political athletes um, who kind of figured the system out and what to say and do. Can you maybe elaborate on some of that and um, kind of also how this played out in the classroom experience that you had? Well, and this is a process that, you're quite right. It's an acculturation process. Learned it began in the, in the People's Republic long before the People's Republic. It was much um, the model for it developed from 1936 37 right through the war period when the communists occupy this guerrilla base in northwest China called Yan'an, and it's called the Yan'an Spirit. Um, and what it was was at that time as Mao got into power, he and his colleagues, most of many of whom who'd spent time in the Soviet Union. Um, including in particular the, the, secure, the head of the security apparatus, who was one of Mao's closest confidants and one of the guys, the architects of the Cultural Revolution, a guy called Kang Sheng. He had actually been at the Wojcinski um, Moscow show trials, and he brought that experience back to Yan'an in 1938, 39. And Mao used that experience and other things that they developed based on the Marxist, the Leninist, Stalinist model of how you transform um, enthusiastic revolutionary young people into um, you know, warriors, revolutionary warriors who will carry out the orders of the party without question. It's how you create cyborgs. 
You know, that's the aim. The aim is to create ideological cyborgs and to create a body of people who can justify it and speak and talk about it in the most beautiful terms. So this is the time, 38, 39, is when the communists first create this amalgam of Confucian language and Stalinist rhetoric and behavior. And that's what we have in China today as a continuation, direct continuation of this long process of a signification of Stalinist thought under the guise of pseudo-Confucian, you know, palaver and, 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 and wordiness. Um, so that process, there's a, they develop a process for how you transform the individual. It's called, uh, a series of lectures are given. They're called, in English, the title is um, how, how to be a good communist the cultivated communist. And if you look at Marxist.org, you can see the original lectures given by Liu Shaoqi, later president of China, later the main object of the Cultural Revolution, denounced and he died in, um, of pneumonia in a jail cell in 1969. Um, but Liu Shaoqi was one of the guys who helped create, he's the guy who created the concept of Mao Zedong thought. He's, that's his term, created in the 19, 1945. But the process is, how do you turn the individual, the individual who is this sort of rambunctious, uncontrollable, petty bourgeois, bourgeois, whatever figure, how do you make them compliant? Now, this is the type of debate and discussion that's been had in all major cultures from, you know, the word go, from long before um, the Christian era. Um, in China, they develop, they have a, a particular culturation process. Under the Maoist regime from the late 30s, they develop a system whereby, um, in particular after 49, they carry out a system and impose a system whereby we begin to identify the the malleable and compliant enthusiasts, they're called enthusiasts from primary school. And through a process of selection and winnowing and gradation and testing, we select the leading cohort, the alpha elite members of each class from primary school onwards through high school and into university or otherwise into technical college or otherwise into the workplace. And we train them and those who we regard as being the vanguard among the vanguard of the elite, people who are most capable of learning the catechism of party knowledge and replicating it and also persecuting it effectively in the workplace or in the classroom by betraying their classmates, following the party line, secretly informing on people and acting publicly, enthusiastically and positively, but secretly being informers. We select, these are the people who become the selected cadre of party activists. So these are the brown nosers and the hall monitors, basically, these personalities. The prefects at school, they're the ones, they're the Communist Party, 93 million members today, that's who they are. They're all the people, they're not an elite, they're a pack of, you know, they, they all learn, they all have you know, competent educations in many regards and so on, but their core aim is to be pliant members of an organism. They are cyborgs. I mean, I'm putting it very crudely, but that is there. And if one reads, there's a huge literature in Chinese about this. I mean, it's all, it's in the, you know, just the other day, actually, I got two copies of the People's Daily dossier. A friend gave me two copies of recent People Daily editions of the People's Daily. Front page stories about, and actually every front page story is about Xi Jinping these days. Two major speeches he gave last week were all about training, what in China called Renzai, that is talented people. Now, talented people means people who fulfill all the criteria of compliance with party rules and regulations. And you can look up, and as I said, if one reads Chinese, you can look up what they all are. It's all available. It's all evident. It's all that, as I said, all that stuff to do with class modernism, prefects, 
and well-behaved people. Now, they're the ones who get on in this kind of system. Each political movement that comes along, and as I said, one every two years, each political movement comes, that comes along gives any individual, and this is Chinese democracy, gives any individual the opportunity to use the movement to further themselves by doing their best to manipulate the language, the study sessions, purges and denunciations, we're talking about mass attacks on people, to further your, your own ambitions and desires by play acting. And I have literally met hundreds and hundreds of these people over the years, and they are often incredibly talented, incredibly smart, and incredibly successful. In the past period, in the 1980s and 90s, we saw most of this type of personality move into the business realm and create, help create the Chinese economic miracle. These days, we're seeing a more traditional approach, and these types of characters are moving in, back in the party and are supporting the whole China dream fiasco. Sorry, I speak of it very dismissively because I've been watching and reading and engaged with and translating stuff related to all this for 50 years now, so I, I am a little bit you know, world-weary. I, I do want to I do want to get to uh, in a moment the the more of the focus on on kind of China today, but um, maybe before that, uh, I, I would I think it would be interesting to hear your experience in the classroom itself of this kind of you know the self criticism, the the way that these denunciations play out, what the dynamic is, what the experience of it is. You know, as you as you mentioned earlier, the the students and the faculty, I guess that you're dealing with at this school, these are people who've gone through the Cultural Revolution at this point and that have survived well enough to get into the positions they are now. What is the experience of, of, of doing this kind of self-criticism stuff in the kind of classroom you were in? And, and what did you yourself um, experience in terms of that stuff? Well, one of the key things is that foreigners were to be protected from too much reality. So they made sure that we only occasionally Sometimes by chance, sometimes by design, did we actually encounter that, cult, that culture of denunciation and criticism? And a, a number of times where it's very powerful, we could see the effects in practical terms on the faces and in the eyes of our teachers. One in particular, I remember so well, wonderful, delightful, and Wu Huanzhang, very famous scholar of, um, of modern literature, who ended up being part of one of these cultural revolution writing groups that wrote the types of keynote denunciatory essays that were such a feature of the years 1972 to 1976. He looked like Bambi caught in the glare of the oncoming bus or car. He looked terrified all the time, even when he was teaching, when he was talking, when he was smiling, there was a look of abject terror in his eyes. He would stutter and splutter. He was incredibly nice and very learned, but you could tell that he had been completely broken. He later told me, years later, he would say that, you know, everything we taught was a lie. I was just terrified all the time that I'd be denounced by one of my students and my life would be ruined and my, you know, my son would never get to school and would never be able to get a proper apartment. They lived in this little hovel. Um, so he was an example. Another one of my teacher, a guy called Wang Xiangfeng up in Shenyang, delightful man, obviously incredibly, incredibly well-spoken, quick-witted. He was one of these capable of people capable of dealing with the situation by 
mouthing all the correct slogans in the correct way. I don't know what types of denunciations of others he'd been involved in. He'd been a university student when the Cultural Revolution began. But he was incredibly, to me and my other foreign friends, incredibly nice and very much prepared to, on the side, silently, quite, I'm sorry, uh, sotto voce, to tell, to say a few things out of turn. He also gave me permission to get banned books from the library. These are books that had been denounced in the Cultural Revolution. Not all books were burned by any means. They were in the library, in the stacks, and on each few pages, they had the, a stamp on them that said, for denunciation only. So you'd read these great works of literature and stuff with denunciation. But the actual practice of denunciation, I, I think I mentioned one particular movement, the first movement I encountered, 1975, January, it was a movement to critique bourgeois behavior in the society. It was called the movement to, to, to study and analyze the 33 quotations by Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, and Chairman Mao on bourgeois rights. So that's the first movement that I... I was tw just 20 and a half years old. This is a this thing being a keynote in all the newspapers, and we had to study these papers. And we had to, as part of our studies and political studies class, we had to um, comment on the, this movement. And I, you know, I could barely even understand what was in the papers. And the bourgeois rights are those residual elements of, of, of pre-revolutionary rights that people had. So we, in, in class, you know, the, we foreign students all commented on, well, our, you know, the head of the, the party secretary has his own limousine with a driver. Surely that's a bourgeois right. He surely should be traveling around in um, at least a minibus with his other colleagues. Um, they shouldn't have their separate dining rooms. You see, even at that early stage in my life, 20 years old, I'm in China, radical revolutionary China, and everywhere you look, as soon as you look beyond the boring, dull, gray and blue Mao jackets and suits and all the you know, seeming simplicity of things, you see carefully graded, graded privilege access in elitism everywhere. It's just encoded in a completely different way, but you learn to see it quite quickly if you're paying attention. And so, you know, you have, the teachers all have various different canteens depending on what rank they are. They have different access to housing and schooling and travel and so on and so forth. So all of these things, they, nowadays they talk about, you know, this corruption having occurred during the reform period. That's absolute rubbish. China's communist society has been riven by corruption from the Yan'an era. I mean, it's been the basic element of how you get people to do anything. You have to give them privileges, and those privileges are abused, and there's no oversight, and there's no proper reporting except for political purges, during which people who are young enthusiasts can use the privileges of others to attack them so as to advance their own career. So anyway, we made all these comments about what we seemed to, thought were inappropriate bourgeois rights and privileges, and our teachers then organized a meeting with the party secretary a week later and they sat us down and then they, then they exposed us to hours of denunciations for our ignorant, arrant, foolhardy, misplaced misinterpretations of the, the, the movement and its importance and so on and so forth. So that was my first experience of what later I would realize, and Mao had done this many times, he called it to, to trick the snake out of its hole so you could chop off its head. Right, you free, uh, the freedom of criticism uh, so that you self-disclose your your guilt, as it were. Feel free to speak up. 
we'll feel free to pay attention, and we will also reserve the right to take action. It's called yin shi chu dong in Chinese to to trick the snake out of its hole.、Um, so I experienced that. It was the first I'd been in China what, two months, two and a half months. <laughs> that was my introduction to the political movement. And meanwhile, in class among our Chinese students, there were those. Who had been very brilliantly were able to talk about these rights in most absolute. They sound like Wang Hui. If you're familiar with the main and the communist、um, Marxist apologist Wang Hui, who wrote this thing about Lenin earlier this year, he's a he would have been one of these kids who knows how to put everything so abstractly and brilliantly and have all these sort of careful sort of、um, you know, rounded ways of getting out of saying anything concrete. And that's our classmates who did that were praised and you know given full. Marks for their understanding and their political alertness and awareness, and they were advanced progressive individuals. And for you, you know, for you personally, I mean, you know, you're you're there. It's been a couple hours since you got your denunciations. I mean, what what is your kind of in, inner state? Like, were you just sort of bemused at the whole thing, or, or did you feel more rattled than that?、Uh, not well. This is what's so different. Of course, that's very shocking to see because by this stage there've been a few other denunciations, and it's quite shocking to see. Um, the first couple of times you've experienced, if you're not the direct object, if you've just said something a bit off, you know, untoward, you, you don't get the full blast. But if you've done something really bad, and the person you, you're subjected to a full-blown、um, performance of outrage and high dudgeon, which I, I was exposed to later, where you have a party secretary, I had once the head of the Muslim propaganda team screaming at me.、Um, It's terrifying because you are. These are people who are, have power over your daily life. Although we're foreigners, and in the end, what can happen except you get sent out of China? Right, right. You always have the kind of psychological cushion of the worst they can do is kick me back to Australia. So you're completely aware of that, and therefore you know. Talk about white privilege, man. This is real white privilege.、Um, anyway, but you learn very quickly. Oh my God, these these leaders and party officials and even classmates, they can turn it on. And turn it off at the drop of a hat. Now that's something you learn very early on, and it is an extraordinary talent. And the, the most talented people are completely capable of men and women turning on extreme rhetorical high dudgeon and fury. We're talking about you know spit flecked rants, you know denunciations, hours of it, not just a few minutes, hours. And、um, you learn, oh my God, this is. And you later, when I met people who'd just been let out of jail or came back from reform camp or this, that, and the other, you learn that this is—they'd all been subjected to many rounds of this. Many of them had done it themselves, obviously. But that's what began in the fifties: is learning how to do that, how to turn on, how to learn off by heart the rhetoric, how to manipulate it cleverly so you keep out of trouble but fuck up other people, and how you can put on a turn. A performance that is powerful and convincing. I mean, I, I, I must say, coming from, again from my part of the world, one always admires the ability of Ameri young Americans to be able to do this type of thing in a very different context, not with the not with the the, the the violent rhetoric, but it is something that you know you can learn. It's, you can learn it. The, the, I, I guess this this dynamic kind of plays out in different ways.、Um, The you know across different cultural scripts. I mean, so what I got that. What was the best denunciation you ever got? So the cultural has ended in seventy six, and I'd been in China for nearly three years. And、um, the, my course in where I was in Xinan came to an end in mid seventy seven, and another university. Only a number of cities were open to foreign students. There was 
Shenyang, where I was, Shanghai, Fudan, there's Peking, those three major cities. In 1977, the government decided to open up another city, Nanking, Nanjing, the former nationalist capital, and the main university there. It used to be called Central University Zhongnan Daxia. It was now called Nanking University or Nanjing Daxia. It was open to a small group of foreign students. So I applied to spend my last year in China in Nanking, wonderful city, so interesting. Many of my best friends from Peking and you know, New Zealand and Australia, there were no Americans in China then, I must say. But Nanking was opened up and um, some of my classmates applied to go there and they were allowed to go. I, because I had been an outspoken, my Chinese was the, the, the most fluent among my cohort of foreign students who were Japanese, um, French, Italian, German, we had no Albanians, no North Koreans where we were there in Peking. So that group of people, about 15 of us, 16 of us. My Chinese by that stage was the best, my spoken Chinese was the best. So I was always pushed by my classmates to be the spokesperson when we had a clash with the authorities. And the clash was to do with, we wanted to have, spend more time with Chinese classmates, spend more time in the countryside, spend more time in factories working with the workers. Because those are the, the wonderful experiences. Working with normal people was just unbelievable. You know, incredibly warm, interesting people who, um, you know, just, who, who treated all the political stuff with, you know, with a, you know, a nod and a blink and a knowing you know, cynicism. And it was just wonderful to be among normal people who weren't trained intellectuals who were going to be the future card leaders of the nation, but just with normal people. Um, but each time we made one, or to, we wanted to, we requested to have all of our meals with Chinese students, although Chinese students were only where we lived. There's no rice. They didn't, Chinese students didn't have access to white rice. They only had access to sorghum, which was um, very rough on, on one's digestion. And the teachers always argued, well, they don't get enough oil and they don't get enough white rice, so their digestive tracts are terrible. So if you eat with them, you'll end up all you'll end up sick. I end up with very bad anemia regardless. But the clash over desire to eat with our Chinese classmates and go to more classes with our Chinese classmates was extreme, and I was the spokesperson. And because I'd been so outspoken, I had a very bad attitude. And it was from a non-important country of Australia. I mean, who gives a damn about Australia? Even, <laughs> even now, I mean, we're talking about peripheral, you know, a pimple on the ass of the world. We people again from where I come from, we, people like me, my generation, have perspective on these matters and no particular, you know, over over um, overstated, exaggerated self opinion. But so I was the person who spoke. So when I applied to go to the new university to Nanking, I said, Ah, Bai Jiaming, classmate Bai, my Chinese name is Bai Tongjie. Very interesting that you made this application. We regard you as a bourgeois anarchist element, and therefore because your attitude has been unacceptable. You may, we have considered, the Ministry of Education in Beijing has considered your case, you may stay on in Shenyang for further study if you wish, but you are not allowed to go to Nanking with your classmate. It was their punishment. So that was my, actually a high point in my early life because I thought they've really got me. You know, I really am, but, you know, this mixture of bourgeois, middle-class affectation with a large element of anarchistic self-importance you know when the when the commies really get into it they know what they're talking about yeah yeah well i mean you know uh, I'm, I'm sure everyone kind of had that segment at their university but uh, I'm, I'm sure most of them didn't have the honor of having the ccp uh give them their certificate of bourgeois anarchism as it were to be a bourgeois anarchist is this not the ultimate isn't elon musk just another bourgeois anarchist 
Yeah, well, I think there was that Elon Musk tweet once. Um, Karl Marx was a capitalist. He even wrote a book about it. That's you know, right. So. <laughs> I remember. Uh, yeah, this is the this is just dialectic, right? Um, I I think uh, you know this has been an awesome awesome discussion. What I want to do for the last half hour or so is move a little bit more to discussing some of these um, more modern cultural developments in China and particularly in the Chinese Party State. Um, you know, I, I think you've kind of uh, from from our discussion. You know, I I think it's clear you're not exactly a fan of the the, the Xi Jinping turns in kind of the the party line. But I think the two things that I would be interesting to focus on are first something we've already kind of made reference to, which is this um, we could call it Maoist revivalism, uh, or or you know maybe to, if I was going to use the official language a little more, a concern with ideological continuity, with making sure that the development of China does not in fact break the the ideological discipline of the party you know this this is kind of the the frame that the party leadership gives to it per, perhaps we should be be somewhat critical of just accepting the 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 official line on it and the other thing um which you could maybe discuss in a few minutes is this development of a kind of state confucianism and uh what you know what exactly goes on behind there so you know maybe if um let why don't we start on on the maoist uh sort of maoist revival side of that how do you read these moves by the the chinese party state is it just a matter of you know waving the ideological flag to create discipline in the ranks or or do you know say the concerns of uh, Wang Huning about the cultural development. Is this actually what's motivating some of these crackdowns? What What is your model of what is going on here? Thanks for listening. We've now reached the end of the first half of the podcast. The second half is available on our Patreon. You can sign up at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. It usually gets better in the second half, so you don't want to miss it. This project wouldn't be viable without your support, so we hope to see you soon.